Avisham trades at a 1,000 price to earnings ratio today. So if you turned on like staking for sequencer profits, that would be 0.1% staking yield a year, you know? And and now if I'm very used to like 10% of staking yield after one year, and Arbitrum's like, oh my God, guys, we're going to be the first L2 to turn on Arbitrum staking for sequence of profits. An additional bonus, 0.1% on the 10% you, you're getting. You're like, oh my God, that's so lame. I'm out of here. I don't know. I think you guys are mid-curving this. I'm definitely right. Uh, I love that energy. Hey everyone, Sam and Dan here. And before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to shout out MetaMask Portfolio. Are you always constantly stressed like us managing your portfolio across different chains, wallets, LP positions, perps positions? I'm excited to tell you about MetaMask Portfolio, which lets you manage all of your crypto assets across different networks, wallets, all in one place. Do more with Web3 your way with MetaMask Portfolio. You'll hear a little bit more about it later in the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Check them out on the ground at DevConnect and be sure to mention Zero X Research when requesting a quote and you'll get a free Web2 pen test with the purchase of your audit. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We've got an awesome analyst roundtable episode lined up for you today. Uh, today is October 30th, and we are joined by Brick and Ren from the BlockWorks Research team. You also can use code 0xresearch10 at checkout when signing up for a BlockWorks Research subscription at blockworksresearch.com. We just put out two awesome dashboards, one highlighting the token migrations for DYDX and Poll, uh, as well as a new ZK Sync era dashboard. So be sure to check those out if you sign up using that code 0xresearch10. We will also put a link to that stuff in the show notes. But uh, Dan, do you want to walk us through some of the biggest movers and losers of the week? Yeah, for sure, for sure. We got a good episode lined up, so excited to kick things off. So on the mover side of things, we got some uh, we got some token burners this week. Uh, so Pepe will start off with the meme coin side of things. Pepe burned six point nine trillion tokens from a multi sig on October twenty. Uh, 23rd. And that's about 1.6% of the total supply roughly. At the time, it was about $5.5 million USD. Um, and the token actually jumped 31% following the burn. Now, this was actually timed pretty nicely with the markets heating up a little bit as they have over the past week or so. Um, but the, the token is still up about 80% in the past 14 days. And the team still holds 3.8 trillion tokens, which is now valued at about five million. So uh, interesting to see a little bit of a burn narrative. You know, last time Brick was on, we did get some uh, some discussion around how useful is token burning um, as when it comes to like a revenue return mechanism. But uh, this is a very different type of burning where it's just like kind of removing team tokens from circulating supply. Um, so d definitely. I think partly why this was perceived differently than the market. I don't think anyone's looking uh, at Pepe for any fundamental reasons. But if you remove tokens from the circulating supply, that's just going to be this this uh, bullish catalyst that traders are going to want to kind of jump on the train of. Uh, so Pepe making serious waves in, over the last couple of weeks. And this could be a reason uh, why some of that action has been occurring. On the other side of things, we have Thorchain, which we've discussed at length on a couple of different podcasts, as well as had Chad Barrett, one of the lead developers in that ecosystem, come on and describe you know, the protocol as well as its new lending mechanism more recently. And that lending mechanism, one of the pieces there is when new borrows or new loans are opened, uh, Rune, the token, the native token of Thorchain is actually burned. And so about 1.5 million Rune has been burnt since the lending protocol launched a few months ago. Uh, and while that's not a huge number in terms of total supply, there was originally 500 million uh, Rune tokens in circulation. Um, so it's, it's still like, you know, less than about a half percent. Uh, it's actually kind of being this again, you know, it doesn't always have to be a huge amount of supply to create that narrative around like, oh, like, you know, there's this protocol is burning tokens. So it's like put an extra eye on it. Um, and again, because this rune is burnt through lending activity, you know, we're still seeing bear market levels of activity when it comes to the amount of leverage people are taking on chain. Um, so, you know, one and a half million over about a month and a half or so. And, 
what is hopefully the, towards the end of a bear market is still pretty good. And so if you kind of fast forward that out, I think is what most people are doing here and saying, okay, well, if we extrapolate that level of activity into a bull market when you know, people are a little more willing to take on-chain leverage, you know, maybe that's a little bit more of an exciting number. And even burning like 1% of the total supply at about 5 million rune, that would be a pretty interesting metric to kind of keep an eye out and follow. Uh, and again, this one is kind of parlaying into price action as well with ThorChain up about 3x off the lows. And it's really been just on a run since the lending protocol itself launched. Um, but one thing to note here is there's definitely some a bit of a regulatory overhang. You know, they're trying to do... Uh, bridging in a way that nobody else has, which isn't inherently bad, but there's an interesting kind of dilemma that gets faced. If you're a really, really good bridge, um, you're going to have illicit activity take place. And that's kind of been something that's plaguing ThorChain for the last couple of weeks. We saw some Lazarus, what is believed to be Lazarus wallets kind of uh, moving over ThorChain from Ethereum to Bitcoin and then hitting some Bitcoin mixers. So it's like, you know, Bit uh, ThorChain wasn't the one actually obfuscating the identity of the wallets because you can see the destination and source chain uh, wallets can connect it to. Uh, but it was it was like this highway that was used in this uh, exploit. So it's kind of like this interesting thing to keep an eye out. Uh, the largest front end Thor swap actually kind of had a response to this regulatory uh, kind of over the regulatory pressure. Uh, token is is looking pretty damaged there, honestly, from from where it's ran up along with ThorChain uh, to where the regulatory overhang kind of took took impact. And it really only hit the front end side of things, which is ThorSwap. Um, so something to keep an eye out there. But the top movers are, are two interesting categories that are both in, or two interesting protocols that both fall within the burn category. I can talk a bit about uh, losers. So I think Frentech was one of the Larger losers last week, you know, if you combine 3-3 and like an exponential pricing curves, once that starts to unravel, that unravels pretty damn quickly. So there were a few days last week where for the first time, active sellers were more than active buyers. Um, I think there was a day specifically where 84% of the volume was sell volume. And that's a lot, you know, um, 219 out of the top 250 keys fell in price. Um, TVL peaked at. 51.5 million roughly and it's currently sitting at 44 million you know ever since fintech launch you've seen clones launch on every single chain to be honest i think the most notable one was probably stars arena and avalanche in a bad way because of like the uh consecutive exploits that it sort of received and the bad publicity but i, I think this is always bound to happen it's kind of what you get when you apply like an exponential pricing curve to like being able to trade keys or shares of individuals. Um, I, I do still like the idea. I think it's definitely fun for people um, to sort of like take part in these like private chats that you can only do so if you uh, buy keys. And then there's been a lot of iterations around Fentax. You know, um, there's one on Linea, which had like, um, I don't know what, um, but yeah, it was basically like, new interesting mechanisms were introduced on top of like the core fan.tech mechanism. And I do think there's like more room for experimentation. Maybe the next bull market, I wouldn't be too surprised if there's like one more like city social buy app that like just becomes huge for like a prolonged period of time. Uh, Sam, you never capitulated and got on friend tech, but Brick and Ren, I know what my usage, if I plotted a chart of my daily usage of friend tech, I know exactly where, what direction that line is pointing, but I'm curious, are you guys still super active on the app? No, not really. Uh, to be honest, I don't think I ever was like super active. Um, I didn't have like that many followers compared to like some of the other analysts on the team, but like I was in there for like a bit, like probably like one or two weeks, I was like relatively more active. And then after that, I was just, like, I can't be bothered with this. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much the same for me. I don't know. There's just nothing to do on the app or it's like such a hassle. You kind of have to force yourself to go to the chat and like talk to people. And I don't know, there's just no way to like naturally retain users. I feel like, because you can as well just go on a, I don't know, telegram group or whatever, create that and then have the same experience or even better experience. Because at one point I also got tired of the app since it didn't load and it signed me out and there were all of these frictions which like quickly deter you from using the app, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I feel like with a social media app, you have a like a, a window of opportunity that fades rather quickly. And it's like, if you can't 
create a sticky user in that small window, then you might be SOL because a good example of that is uh, Be Real. There was like an article on circulating around Twitter. I cannot remember where I saw anything about this, but or who wrote it, but just like talking about like I used to use Be Real every day. I thought it was so fun. And then like once it got boring, I I couldn't I haven't opened the app in months. And it's kind of like that great example of like, if you can't create a sticky user, then they're going to dissipate really quickly, uh, which is in contrast to something like Twitter, where, you know, everyone kind of has built a, at least on crypto, like there's such a community there that I think is really, that's what keeps me coming back. And I think it's really hard to replicate that into a paid environment. Like, I don't want to have to pay to go talk to my friends like that. Like, so I'm never going to connect with my friends because I don't need to pay them. So then it's like, how do I, kind of kickstart the community aspect of things if I don't have like my core group of friends to go, you know, just jam on ideas with. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I always felt like there was something somewhere with friend tech, but its current form was never really like overly intriguing to me. Clubhouse is another good example of that too. Like, and then Twitter just went ahead and incorporated spaces and then that app died in like a week. <laughs> so definitely agree with you there, Dan. I do think they get a little bit too much slack for the like uh, exponential bonding curve, especially once they launch a token. Cause if I'm not mistaken and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's like 20% of the fees go to uh, like protocol revenue. So I think that volatility is actually really good, especially once a token launches, because if they do some Ponzi nomics and buy back the token and burn it again, they'll, you know, they'll probably be a, a conversation in, in the movers at a future date. So I don't know. I think it could definitely be a good time to start looking at it again while everyone's kind of down on it um, in the anticipation of a token being launched based on their points in like four or five months. I think it was only 10%, but I'd have to go back and look as well. Because I think 20% was taken and then like 10% went to the owner of the keys and 10% goes to the protocol treasury. I'd, I'd have to double check though. I'm not entirely positive. I think it was um 5% and 5%. <laughs> okay, so. I will clarify that. I'm also not too sure. And yeah, as far as like the points program goes, you know, like I think this trend first got started with on Solana with like, margin five and then a lot of other protocols join the points gang um yeah i i know one of the analysts on our team pivots feels quite strongly against points program uh i'm like kind of in the middle on one hand like it's a really good way for protocols to not commit themselves to like certain airdrop parameters or even like airdrop itself and just to like kind of like tease an airdrop, but now like without having the intention to do an airdrop. And so you move like one step forward in their process of like teasing points. But also on the other hand, I also don't really like, I think with a lot of these points programs, you've seen that even if users have contributed a lot to like protocol growth or whatever, like vanity metric that the protocol likes, like in the end, users are getting a very, very small percentage of like the token supply and it like, it didn't it's not impactful enough for like the user that like contributed to the protocol. And just to set the record straight, Ren, Ren is correct. There's a 10% with split five and five between the key owner and the friend tech treasury. I mean, still though, I mean, everyone's talking yeah, yeah, about how bad it's doing. Yeah. And that, you know, they had a hundred thousand dollars of fee revenue the last 24 hours. I just pulled up DeFi online. I mean, that's, that's nothing, you know, that's top 10, top 15 over the last 24 hours. And that's, when everyone's pretty down on it. So I think inserting a token in there could definitely uh, reignite the the interest. I just think people have attention spans of goldfish and crypto. So it's going to be a couple more months before we see that. Yeah. And Rand, I know you just mentioned Pibble's distaste for points programs as a uh, seasoned airdrop farmer. But from the protocol's perspective, I, I mean, I agree with you, man. Like, should you really be giving out such a large portion of your uh, token allocation at a, as a one-time airdrop. And like, I tend to think the answer is probably no. Um, there's like two different sides of that, right? Like Uniswap did a pretty massive, a relatively large airdrop. Um, and then one of its competitors, Curve, took the opposite approach. We said, we're going to give a very small airdrop, but we're going to have a very, very large ongoing incentive program. Um, and of course, Uniswap's kind of been the monster there, but it makes you wonder like is, how pivotal was the airdrop in, in their success. And there's actually a uh, an upcoming speech or a, a talk at DuneCon exactly on this topic is like how airdrops have changed the, through time and like, you know, how pivotal are they to a protocol success? So uh, I guess this has turned into a little DuneCon chill, but uh, 
definitely excited for for to kind of listen to that one. And if you're in, if you're going to be in DuneCon next week, definitely reach out to either myself or, or Westy. We're going to be there and would love to uh, meet up and uh, talk crypto. What's up, everyone? As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize Hexens, the premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review of the new Polygon TK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, OneInch, NewBank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis in cybersecurity consulting. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. There has been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nation history so it's safe to say that your team has a lot on the line don't skip out take your security seriously and choose hexens don't forget to mention 0x research for a free web2 pen test with your partnership and you can reach out to hexens at hexens.io or find them on the ground at devconnect without further ado let's get back to today's episode it's probably a good time to to jump sections here and keep the ball rolling with a governance update uh so a couple good things going on one of them is arbitrum staking which when we say staking in this context, referring to just taking a token um, and putting it in a reward contract. So you're not like actually a security staking, if you will, like you would with say staked ETH. And so there's a proposal up where the yields can either be 1%, 1.5% or 1.75% um, in the form of the total Arbitrum supply. And it, in, it will initially use an inflation mechanism, but that can be altered to like say the Dow treasury because there is the Arbitrum token itself has the ability to turn on uh, in, like new token issuance. And I think that's up to about 2% per year. And so even if let's say like the uh, proposal was passed at 1%, that would just be a 1% total in total supply uh, increase, which if, obviously if not every token was staked into this contract, then you would be earning an outsized portion of the reward. So 1% could go a lot farther than for the on the actual end APR. Um, so just something to keep in mind there, but kind of interesting because this could create a little bit of a supply stink because you do have to time lock your tokens into this, into this contract um, as it currently stands. Again, this is just in the proposal phase uh, and the max lock is up to one year. So curious to get everyone's take on this because Right now, like, I guess there's a couple different ways that I see it. Like, all right, let's assume that it's like, you know, if it's anywhere between one and 2% of, uh, you know, total, total token supply, that's really not a huge number. But if it's coming from like new inflation or even the Dow Treasury, like how useful is that to the Arbitrum token? I think my one sentence takeaway is that it's so stupid. Like by locking up your ARP tokens into this reward contract, you are literally contributing nothing to i guess like any set of stakeholders to be honest the foundation the dow the ecosystem maybe people that are like trading up and holding it in hopes that like your surprising will offset some of the inflation or like the supply like becomes circulating or liquid once like DAOs start using those for liquidity incentives or whatever but my take is that like it's very pointless i feel that the mechanism isn't that bad especially if it's such a small percentage of the total supply. Like, it's always better to do something than just let it have uh, rest in a treasury or whatever, like, uh, without it doing anything. And even if it comes from inflation, I don't know. I don't really have a problem with that. It's just a good way to get tokens to lock up. Uh, and if they really don't have anything better to invest in, at the moment, like it seems that a super popular thing to do right now is just like give uh, grants to protocols, which is also debatable, like how uh, effective that is in the long term. I would say my main tip with, with it is honestly just like the the inflation rate based on the total supply as opposed to the supply actually sitting in, in users wallets. Like I can't remember the max supply off the top of my head, but there's really not that much supply circulating, especially if you um, kind of exclude the the ARB that's just sitting in the Dow Treasury. Like if you look at just the ARB sitting in liquidity pools and in different different individual users' wallets, that inflation is actually going to be a lot higher than than one one and a half or two percent sounds on paper, in my opinion. So I get the motivation to get people to lock up ARB so that way the price pumps short term, the value of incentives goes up short term. But I think long term, I don't know if that's really the best thing ever. Like, I feel like they should maybe wait until there's a mechanism where ARB staking is actually needed to 
maybe decentralize the network, you know, participate in fraud proof resolution or, or something along those lines, other than just handing out tokens for the sake of handing out tokens. Yeah, Sam, I, I think I wholeheartedly agree with you there. But Brick, I, I want to get your rebuttal. But before we do that, I just want to put some some numbers onto exactly what you just said. So if you did, so if 50% of the total circulating supply of ARB right now was staked into this contract, and, and there was just 1% of inflation was passed. So they're going to do 1% of FDV inflation, and half of the total circulating supply was staked. That would equate to about a 16% APR staking yield. So that, to your point, like there is a big mismatch there and that does create like a, a larger number. So you like, you take this 1% inflation that everyone will feel and you can kind of make a really attractive supply sink here. But like, again, like how useful is that? Like, why do we need to do that? What is, what is the main drivers? And, and Brick, I, I'd love to get you to expand on like why this is beneficial to maybe ARB token holders and you know, the, the DAO as a whole. I mean, it's just another way for investors to earn a yield. Maybe I'm thinking about this from the like wrong perspective, but as an investor, I feel that I can either participate this in, in this or not. And it's my own like decision. I don't get inflated if I don't uh, like want to get inflated, if you know what I mean. I get what you you guys are saying that it might not be a good long-term uh, like driver for the protocol but okay what's the alternative then what else can you do at this point i would say maybe you don't need to to do anything right now like the sequencer is making a couple million dollars every quarter if you wanted to do some sort of like revenue share like i think that could be a more interesting way to do it of course you probably have a lower yield than you know, inflating your token by one percent which in the grand scheme of things isn't very impactful but it's just like i don't i don't get the why here like Okay, yeah, maybe this makes price go up, and that's good in the short term. But uh, it se it seems a bit it seems like a like a, a circular error here. Like, oh, we just issue no new tokens to our own token for no particular reason. Yeah, I also think like no one's looking at say with like a sixteen percent staking yield. Like, if you're gonna sell op tokens, you're still gonna sell it. Like, even with that sixteen percent staking yield, I think in terms of like supply dynamics, that's not gonna change someone's decision about whether they're going to buy or sell Arbitrum tokens that much. Like if I have Arb sitting in my wallet today and I was going to sell it, I'll sell it. It's not like I'm going to see this proposal and be like, okay, maybe I'll get like 10 to 16% staking you and I'm not going to sell it. Maybe I'm mid-curving this, but I don't think it's that impactful for like the average like investor decision. That plus they're going to have like, okay, if you fast forward to the long term, there will be some sort of like decentralized sequencer. And if you really think like zero knowledge proofs are the way, then eventually they're going to have to have some sort of approving system. Uh, and both of those things will over the long term need to be decentralized. So if that's the case and we're going to have to have an actual service that gets uh, incentivized, then I would want to save this inflation for actually performing a service to the protocol. Like uh, incentivizing a decentralized sequencer, for example, then like that is a serve you're performing a service. It's related to the security of the network and that should be in incentivized through inflation. So that could like, that's kind of the way I would want to see new token issuance being used as I'm thinking about it right now. I was going to say, I, I think it's a great way though, to, if you want to do that in the long term, this is a great way to start and kind of manage expectations. Um, I've been late lately looking at link for a bit and. I feel they're really good at this where they're like, um, even though their uh, native token might not accrue uh, as much value as everybody thinks or whatever, they're really good at like managing market expectations by making this like super forward looking optimistic outcomes. And in a way, I feel that this could be one of those things where like, if no Arbitrum does it themselves, like the community starts spinning up this um, narrative of like, okay, they're introducing staking now. When are they going to decentralize the sequencer? Is this going to be like a new revenue uh, opportunity for us? And then it like spirals from there. And as I said, I feel that if it's really 1% of the total supply a year, I don't feel that that's a bad cost or like it's a good risk return investment in that way.
All right. Speaking of sort of setting expectations, then, you know, like right now, this expectation is, I think, like, even if this goes through, even in the most bearish scenario, let's say staking yield is 10%, right? Then you sort of set that as like your baseline expectation for of staking. And for example, if you turned on staking for sequencer profits today, right? Arbitrum, um, checking our analytics dashboard, which you should definitely check out. Um, Arbitrum trades at a 1000 price to earnings ratio today. So if you turned on like staking for sequencer profits, that would be 0.1% staking yield a year, you know? And, and now if I'm very used to like 10% of staking yield after one year, and Arbitrum's like, oh my God, guys, we're going to be the first L2 to turn on Arbitrum staking for sequence of profits. An additional bonus, 0.1% on the 10% you, you're getting. You're like, oh my God, that's so lame. I'm out of here. Right? If anything, I think like that may be slightly bearish in terms of setting expectations. I was just going to say, basically, like you're discouraging activity by just telling people, hey, lock up tokens to earn more tokens. It's like, if you really want to improve the entire ecosystem, increase sequence of revenue like it would make more sense to like have people lp usdc native usdc because right now usdc e has a bigger market share than native usdc with arb and then you lock up those lp tokens so there's more liquidity and then you can get rewards there like there's a lot of different things you could do that actually benefits the entire ecosystem more than just all right guys here's your free risk-free 20 percent yield on arb i don't know i think you guys are mid-curbing this i'm definitely right <laughs> uh, I love that energy, but uh, if we if we leave, we'll leave things there for now, and maybe check back once this this proposal gets a little closer to maybe if it hits a snapshot, but we'll we'll revisit this and see uh, kind of where where the DAO decides to move. But uh, moving on on the governance updates, we have an interesting one for CRV USD. So uh, Curve is actually discussing very much still in the ideation phase. This isn't like uh, I would say this is like very much an emerging proposal, very in discussion. The community is still saying like, hey, is this even a good idea? But they are thinking about distributing protocol revenue as CRV USD. So to give a little background here, uh, for those who are a little less familiar with the Curve ecosystem and kind of how it works, protocol revenue is distributed to VE CRV token holders. To get VE CRV, you have to take regular CRV tokens and lock them for up to four years. Um, and so 50% of all DEX fees go to uh, token lockers and 100% of all fees from the lending market go to the token lockers. Today, those fees are aggregated and then distributed to those uh, VECRV in the form of three pool LP tokens. As I'm saying this, it is so painful to say all, like all these acronyms out loud, but here we are. This is this is what we're this is what we're working with. Um, so it gets consolidated into the LP token of a pool that contains USDC, USDT, and Dai. All that really is to say is you're basically getting your fees, protocol revenue distributed to you as stable coins. Um, and so right now the current yield is about 4%. And, and it's kind of non-trivial to change the token, to be honest, because basically what happens is, especially on the, the um, DEX side of things, but even on the lending market side, the fees get paid in a variety of different tokens. So like when you swap, um, let's say ETH, to CRV, like that, the fee payment will either be in ETH or CRV, and that ultimately needs to get swapped into a stablecoin to be distributed to the VE CRV lockers. And it's kind of nice to be getting your fees paid in stablecoins. It's kind of what, uh, it, it's definitely different than, you know, saying like, oh, we'll buy back CRV and distribute that to the token holders. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's good for CRV price in the short term, but like people want to be paid in something useful and largely that's stable coins today or maybe like eth as well would be interesting and so the reason that the community is kind of discussing changing the fee token from this stablecoin lp position into crv usd which is the protocol's native stablecoin uh, is really to create additional and ultimately demand uh utility and demand for the stablecoin and that's really really important when you're creating a stablecoin because ultimately Market cap is a function of how many people want to hold your stablecoin. If even in a lending, especially in a lending design based, a CDP based stablecoin where lending must, borrowing and lending must occur to mint new tokens. If the price of your stablecoin is falling, then you're going to see people redeeming their loans or, or buying it back and redeeming their loans, which is lowers the market cap. If you're looking at stablecoin market cap, it's it's truly just a function of the demand to hold your stablecoin. Uh, and obviously, price is, is very important in this equation. And so 
the how this kind of creates more demand for the token is it's creating like a systemic buy pressure on the token which ultimately raises the price um and the buy pressure is not necessarily a small amount the curve token i just pulled up coin gecko here um so I, I honestly want to double check how accurate this is but it says in the last 24 hours there's about 15 million dollars of trading volume on the crv usd token and there's roughly three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars of weekly fees and so that is all getting converted into three curve which creates buying pressure in the three pool and if you're putting that directly onto crv usd then any fee that is collected in a token other than crv usd will need to be swapped into crv usd so it's creating that systemic weekly buy pressure um and that's also presuming that the token holders that are currently being paid in a combination of usdc usdt and DAI are willing and excited about being just uh, paid in crv usd instead um and it kind of has like this twofold impact on on the token i would say so Curve has a really, really interesting interest rate model where the price of CRV USD is a factor in the current interest rate paid by borrowers. So it's not a function of governance at all. Governance can tweak some specific parameters, but like the rate will uh, freely update on its own. And so a, a higher CRV USD price will directly lower the, the fees paid by borrowers by shifting the equilibrium of the rate curve. And it will indirectly lower the interest rate by activating the AMOs in the Curve ecosystem, which will automatically deploy capital into the pools. And that all then the act of deploying capital into pools also decreases the current rate. So it has this twofold effect on not only decreasing the current interest rate paid by borrowers, uh, but also kind of creating this this systemic demand for the token. And Curve's seen some great success with its its new lending market here. Uh, I think the total market cap's up to about 128 million as of today, and it's really been on a, it's been on a great pace. And so it'll be exciting to kind of watch this, see if it has any major impacts on uh, on the stablecoins growth. I know we talk a lot about Go that launch at a sim similar time. Uh, we talked a lot about Go the other week, so we won't kind of try to make the comparisons here. But curious if you guys have any thoughts on uh, Curve's lending market after I just spent that time rambling. I got a question, um, and this might be a dumb one, but does the interest rate ever go negative? And then if you're paid out CRV USD, is that fine to just hold in your wallet? Like you're not getting charged any interest. Then on top of that, obviously you don't want to depeg the upside and then screw borrowers over who then have to buy back that CRV USD and then repay their loan. So I guess that's kind of loaded, but how does that work? Great question. So three questions. No, the interest rates are asymptotic to zero, so they cannot fall below zero. Uh, the second question, the only per people that pay, uh, interest in the system is, are the active borrowers. So if you just like went to a liquidity pool and bought CRV USD, if you're just holding a stable coin, you know, similar to holding like die when the token deep and the stable coin defects, the upside, uh, that actually allows the AMOs to kick in and then they will basically sell, uh, unbacked CRV USD into the pools and that lowers the price. Um, so I say sell, but they're really just making a, a one a single sided deposit of CRV USD. So that like brings the pool back into equilibrium, um, which is what they call like deploying debt into these pools. And so that the act of deploying debt based on the interest rate formula actually lowers the rates paid. Um, so deploying debt is good for low rates. That's pretty cool. Do you think there's any big risks of this like deep pegging to the downside because um, if I remember correctly, the big, quote unquote, big uh, DPEG a couple of months ago, the AMOs always almost ran out of like capital to buy back the stable coins. And if that would have happened, then the only thing that's uh, anymore like defending the peg is the interest rate mechanism, right? Right. Yep. That's exactly right. So the AMOs are only useful for DPEGs to the upside, just as like a PSM is um, until it's empty, then there's nothing left to, to kind of sell and, and try to fight back. Uh, when things DPEG to the downside, you're left with two things like, like an interest rate mechanism to kind of incentivize activity and arbitrageurs, arbitrage from borrowers, right? Because if I borrow something at one and then I sell the stable coin and then let's say a huge DPEG happens and it DPEGs at 80 cents, let's just make up a number. 
then that when I go repurchase, I can buy what I sold for $1, I can buy it back for 80 cents, basically, like you're going short, the thing you're borrowing effectively. And so you're that's one method. And the other one's the interest rate mechanism, right. And so when the deep stablecoin depegs the downside interest rates, like hyperbolically increase. And so if you get like a material DPEG, you're going to see a very, very large number in interest rates. And there's a cap, of course, but like depegging, you know, to 99.95 is like you start seeing material movement in, in the interest rate. Hmm. Okay. Maybe I misunderstood the mechanism then because my understanding was that AMOs start closing their positions, which decreases the stablecoin supply which should bring the peg up again. But I mean, I guess it depends how you count stablecoin supply. Personally, when it comes to like CDP stablecoins, I would really only count the circulating supply uh, that is like from actively borrowing the stablecoin. Like, I mean, the peg keepers deploying tokens, I, like if I wanted to know the adoption and traction of a protocol, like I, I wouldn't be interested in how much debt they've deployed into these pools. Yeah, makes sense. But the total supply should still um, have an effect on the price, right? Uh, total supply, no, just price. Frax bulls and shambles after that comment, Dan. <laughs> I can take this uh, last governance update if we're uh, ready to move on past curve. So Osmosis just passed a proposal to incentivize DYDX liquidity. Uh, the pool will have a 0.05% swap fee, and the proposal suggests allocating 200,000 Osmo tokens towards incentivizing LPs there. That's about 70,000 US dollars. Um, and it's over 50 days. So they would need to see roughly $140, $150 million of volume in order to make back that spend in Osmo tokens to uh, um, essentially make it a worthwhile venture. I personally love this. I think there's going to be a ton of ARB opportunities between the ETH uh, DYDX coin that's locked in the bridge or circulating over uh, on Ethereum versus the stuff that's going over on in Cosmos land. So I expect a bunch of volume here, and I think it'd be pretty good for Osmosis uh, in terms of pumping their volumes and fees. But curious if you guys have anything to add there. I think um, just a few things that just briefly come to mind. I think Liquid Stake DYDX is going to be a pretty big thing. So I'm not sure whether Osmosis is incentivizing like DYDX liquidity or like staked DYDX liquidity, but it'd be interesting to see the direction they go. Um, I know roughly $50 million of DYDX has migrated over from Ethereum so far. And the reason I know that is because Dan has built a great dashboard on our analytics too. So if you're interested in how that's going, definitely check that out. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm interested to see like whether, for example, liquidity for staked DYDX will be more than DYDX. And then just another completely random thing that comes to mind is if you're a centralized exchange, and you're holding like users' balances and DYDX. Like, do you also bridge all of that to like the new like app chain, or what do you do there? I actually have no idea. You'd think that they'd migrate the tokens to the you know proper token standard, but maybe they'll be like the last ones to do that. Uh, but not completely sure. That's a really good question. Yeah, I like your point about the stake DYDX. I, I agree. I think that's going to be a pretty hot token in the in the Cosmos DeFi ecosystem. But uh, it's definitely a good move, right? If you're a DEX, you need to fight for liquidity. And I don't know, but I'm really curious what's going on on some of the DEXs on Neutron, like Astroport. That's really seems like it's going to be the main rival to Osmosis in terms of who's going to win the liquidity wars for major assets over there. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how that's going. Like, I, I don't know if they're they're making a push as well, but DYDX is like probably the most exciting DeFi asset in the Cosmos ecosystem now, and would be very interested to see kind of what that looks like. Um, and the the token migration thing's pretty interesting. So we've only seen about five point five point nine percent of the supply migrate over. And one thing I'm interested in is to see if we get any like weird price mismatches between the ETH version and the Cosmos version as a more meaningful amount of liquidity is migrated from ETH to Cosmos because there's like an arbit there's a really easy arbitrage if if you need to move the asset from ETH to Cosmos, but it's a one way bridge. So there's no going back. Um, so like I don't know how that like how you'd kind of repeg it if the uh, if the ETH asset got like crazy whack out of price. So I don't know, definitely something I'm keeping an eye on. I don't think I'm going to be like trying to make any plays or anything by any means. That's definitely not financial advice, but just as like a data junkie, I'm really curious to see how those two prices match. Stride as well also put up a governance proposal uh, on the DYDX forums to 
basically, I, I can't remember exactly what the proposal is, but they're trying to get the DYDX LST live for them. So that way they can start capturing some of that market. So that's another governance update to, to pay attention to. All right, everyone, let's take a moment to hear about MetaMask portfolio. If you're like me and Sam, managing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be so overwhelmingly complicated. That's why we're excited about MetaMask portfolio. All you have to do is connect your MetaMask wallet to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs in one place. You can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and state crypto assets at competitive rates all within the app. And you get to choose from a vetted list of providers. There's no more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all within one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Peep the link in the description of today's episode to get started now. Uh, should we move to Hot Seat Cool Throne? Let's do it. All right, Ren, kick us off, man. Sure. This week I have uh, Layer Zero in the hot seat. I especially wore my Layer Zero shirt for them. Um, I don't think I put them in the hot seat to be honest, but Lido Dao has definitely put them in the hot seat. So on October fifth, uh, sorry, on October twenty fifth, Layer Zero announced that Wrapped Stake Thief is now available as an OFT on Binance Chain, Scroll, Avalanche, and Ethereum. For those who need a refresher, OFT stands for Omni Chain fungible token. It's sort of this like crossing token standard that allows tokens to be minted and burned through the layer zero bridge. Um, so obviously wrap stake thief is like a wrapped version of Lido DAO's stake thief. And basically what layer zero has done here is expanded wrap stake thief access to all of these L2s and these side chains, right? Um, and it enables these ecosystems to basically use wrap stake thief for, um, stake thief um in their like DeFi ecosystems it's gotten a lot, a lot of pushback so far because what layer zero did was on the day itself they posted a forum post in the lido forums saying that they will give ownership of the rep stake thief contract to the lido dao upon support and in their marketing material mostly their tweets they use statements such as Rapsake Thief is now integrated with layer zero's oft standard or for example um this will enable respective DeFi ecosystems to flourish while supporting Lido's desire for chain expansion. So, you know, if, if, you, you, if you were reading these tweets, you would maybe walk away thinking that this was like a big partnership between Layer Zero and Lido, um, that they've been working together for like a long time and hashing out like the security concerns. Does Lido want to use Layer Zero as a canonical bridge for um, rap safety? But that's not what has happened here. Layer Zero has sort of independently gone and basically announced that uh, Rapstick Thief will now be available on all of these L2s. And so I think most of the pushback is that there hasn't been a lot of time for the community to sort of discuss what bridge Rapstick Thief should use. Um, for example, across this co-founder was like absolutely livid in the forums and his trees. Like he was like ready to like go on a podcast and just like fight it out with Brian from Layer Zero. Um, and basically like people are scared that the security of layer zero isn't enough for a token that's so important to DeFi. It's probably like one of the largest market caps today and Hasu especially, right? Hasu is chief strategic head strategy for Lido and his comments in the forum were like very, very heated, you know, like he says he was speechless by what he's witnessing here. Uh, the parties involved burned a lot of goodwill. There were a lot of sketchy sales tactics involved and by unilaterally deploying a bridge and marketing it in an official seeming way, you're trying to pressure the DAO into accepting and avoiding liquidity fragmentation. So yeah, just a, a lot of pushback in as a whole. I think Lido wants to avoid a scenario where users think that Layer Zero's Rapstick Thief is the canonical version of Rapstick Thief on all of these chains and probably another scenario that they're trying to avoid is liquidity fragmentation. The last thing you want is like layer zero Rapsake Thief and then Lido Rapsake Thief and then across Rapsake Thief and then like Synapse Rapsake Thief. Like that's like a pretty like horrible user experience that I'm sure we are all too familiar with, with like 10 different versions of like USDCs on like some random chain. Um, so yeah, a, a lot has happened since then. In coordination with Scroll, Stargate or Layer Zero has actually removed the bridging of Rapsic Thief into Scroll, um, even though they were one of like the early L2s that got announced. Um, but my, my general takeaway here is that this may be a bit controversial. Layer Zero didn't do anything wrong, you know, like 
it's a permissionless world and we're all living in it. Vapsake Thief is a token. Developers can integrate it however they may choose to. Sure, were some of their communications and marketing like slightly misleading? Could they have like put out more disclaimers? Definitely. You know, they could have said this is not like the official Rapsic Thief, it's just our implementation of it. We haven't gotten Lido's um like support official support of this, but you know, like I feel like that's kind of why we're here for crypto, right? Like the whole like permissionless innovation, people can build on top of each other however they want. And it feels like definitely there are probably like some security concerns, you know, um, for WebSafety, they're using Google Oracle as, oh, sorry, Google Cloud as the Oracle and they're using the default layer zero relayer as a relayer. So I can kind of see some like how you would be concerned considering that you don't want like Google Cloud to be sort of like, partaking in the security of bridging of like one of the largest tokens in DeFi today. But also, you know, I think it's a free market. If people want Vapsake Thief on L2s and sidechains, then someone will figure out a solution and someone will implement it. You know, I get that Lido that wants to take it slowly and like consider all of these like security considerations for these different bridge vendors, but they really got to get to it. Um, I'll stop there. That was a lot. And I'd love to hear you guys thoughts. Yeah, I think this is like a this is an interesting one because there's like two sets of actions. There's on-chain actions and off-chain actions by layer 0. Um, you know, obviously we none of us were on the the calls with Lido and layer 0 about this. That sounds like, you know, according to Hasu these things may appears to have happened um based on his post about shady sales tactics. And, you know, I don't know what was said there behind those closed doors, but the off-chain actions do seem a little um, out of line in a lot of different ways, just like from a business perspective. But there are like to your point, Rand. Like I, I don't disagree. I think their on-chain actions are exactly what you could expect from a bridge. Like they need to get their form, their asset, as, their assets as widespread as possible, um, and that's kind of how they're going to do it. Like it, you should, I would expect every bridge to race to do the exact same thing. To be honest, like that's bridging is likely a race to zero in fees, like most things are. Um, but bridging, especially, I, I do think it'll be heavily commoditized in, honestly, the near term. And because of that, like you do need to be the widespread, most adopted use case. Um, and so going after very important assets seems like a no-brainer to me. I liked that you mentioned the USDC thing because anyone who's used Arbitrum, you know, there's USDC native now and there's USDC.e. And it is a little bit of a pain in the ass, but at the end, end of the day, like, it's not a huge thing. It's just kind of like, you know, how the cookie crumbles. And yes, I think everybody would agree that UX is better with one version of the asset. But if you're Lido, like, you know, you have this really in-demand asset. You, you got to get that thing. You, like, you, you have to race the bridges in a lot of different ways. And there's not this great silver bullet for bridging software, bridging solutions. And it's like that kind of makes the problem worse because people are very concerned about the risks that are associated with bridges. And for good reason, we've, we've seen how many billions of dollars get exploited through bridges. Um, so it's like, yeah, I think the off-chain actions by layer zero are, are really what was problematic here because, you know, we can't brag about DeFi Legos and then be upset when we see people take people build into that world, right? So that's kind of where my head's at is they really need should have used better off chain communication with like from a person to person level. Um, but their on chain actions of, you know, making it an OFT, I, I just don't think that's bad. Yeah, I, I, I don't get this from like a business perspective, because you're making so much bad will or whatever you want to call it for yourself. Like, now you're messing with one of the biggest protocols on, in DeFi. Um, a lot of users see this as a bad thing as well. And it's clear that, as you said, there were some maybe off or like shady actions made off chain. And this feels like a more of a centralized decision and not like something in a, made in a crypto ethos, if you can call that. Um, which is why I'm kind of against this whole thing or like I didn't like how this whole thing played out. I just feel like as Lido, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be like, oh, well, you guys want us to self-limit? No, like market forces will decide. Like this is kind of the same thing if you ask me. I mean, if the OFT token that they create and launch doesn't have any demand, then boom, you're fine. Doesn't matter, right? What am I missing here? That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I, again, I think that's like, that's true, but then you also can't be layer zero and make it sound like the official supported bridge. Like that's a little shady. 
Um, and of course, you know, there's a good chance that that was just a social media person trying to do their job. Like there could be no malicious, malicious intent behind that. I, I don't know, but I, I think it just comes again, like I would just keep saying this, but I think it was just their behavior behind closed doors and then marketing it as an official bridge. Like I, I definitely disagree that that was an appropriate move. Yeah. I think the way I look at it, like if I was a bridge protocol founder, if I was layer zero, I am not waiting for someone to start a discussion on the Lido forums, go through like a three month bridge assessment process, um, for something that I can do permissionlessly. you know, you bet my ass that I am going to do this and pray to God that there's demand for rap safety on all of these L2s and sidechains and hopefully like generate those network effects. Um, and just like be the sort of like de facto, I'm not going to say canonical, but like de facto, like version of RevSec Deep that people use on all of these L2s and sidechains. Sure. Like, is it like a bit against like the crypto ethos? Like maybe. But I think, I think no there, right? Because you're building with DeFi Legos. You're taking a great product that someone else built and then implementing it in your form and fashion. And like, that was kind of the first generation of, of use case was like, oh, composability, this is gonna be awesome. Like you can build this great thing and then I can go put it somewhere else. Yeah. And I think after the event happened, you know, there's a lot of bridges that came out and then to announce like this open bridge standard, right? Like I think across Cedar, LiFi, Socket, Router, I love all of the teams, but they came out with this open bridge standard and like coming out with this open bridge standard, it feels like all of those like LST protocols with like 0.1% market share saying like, okay, for like ethos sake, we're going to self-limit to like 22% or whatever when they're like super, super teeny, you know, um, it kind of just feels like you're just reacting to the fact that you didn't have the balls to deploy like your version of wrap safety on all of these L2s and sidechains before layer zero did. So I I'm pretty in support of layer zero here and uh, what, what they did in terms of like deploying this wrap safety as a no FT. The only place I think your business plan falls apart is because now when, all right, there's RapSake ETH on this L2, you, liquidity incentives are kind of the name of game for, for bootstrapping. Lido's not throwing some tokens your way to help kind of bootstrap your tokens uh, uh, native liquidity now. And so then it's like, all right, maybe there's a use case for the LZO token. Who knows? Yeah, t timing wise, I think it's pretty good. I'm, I'm sure they didn't like do this, but... I'm sure like there are people still there farming Stargate, uh, like using Stargate to farm for like a potential layer zero token. And now that Rapsake Deep is the token available on Stargate, like I think you'll see like a decent amount of volume and usage. Rick, you want to give us your hot seat cool throne this week? Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to all the people or all the capital that has been kind of sidelined uh, for a while now. I guess there's a lot more coming maybe in the future, but uh, last week we saw around $325 million uh, come into crypto, and that's the largest week since July 2022. Um, yeah, after everything that's happened, I guess the market feels more fun again. Like I've never seen, or it's been a long time since I've seen crypto Twitter this euphoric, and it's kind of funny to see people uh, bang heads against each other and like, now expectations are kind of diverging like the whole scene isn't uh, or doesn't have the same opinion which is yeah i think that creates a lot of opportunities um but then again like now a lot of the or like the market has pretty much decoupled from the s p 500 again which has been dropping for the last week so i'm not sh like sure how long this upside pressure can be maintained um, and we're also getting earnings this week um, and if some companies start underperforming that could be maybe bad for like the crypto scene and then also we had that uh, GDP coming in hot last week which kind of implies that rates will be higher for longer which again isn't the best thing for crypto um, but yeah, it's great to see. And I guess this all started with um, the fake BTC spot rumors that started circulating around one day uh, recently. And then the market like reacted super positively. Everybody realized that it was fake. Then it came down, but still a bit of a higher level 
than before the news. So like, I guess then people started like kind of getting this FOMO of, okay, we got to stay in the market now. This is like, everything's going to start happening soon. So let's start taking positions and yeah, can't wait for institutional capital to like really flow into the scene and uh, yeah, see what happens. Also, I guess that a lot of protocols right now are uh, like maybe getting closer to their intrinsic value, if you can call that, or like uh, there's been a lot of playing around with these meme tokens for the past two, three months, but now uh, protocols with like good tech and like a lot of forward looking potential have started to like be, become more noticed. And I think one of those uh, tokens is Solana or Sol, um, which around a month ago or month and a half ago was like one of the most popular shorts out there. Um, but now the sentiment has like flipped and everybody is super positive right now. Um, and the token is up 60% in 30 days. So we'll see what happens because uh, this week, uh, is the largest Solana uh, or the largest Solana conference is going on, and historically, I guess the performance of the token hasn't been that great after the uh, conference. So we'll see what happens there. But yeah, haven't been this excited for a while. Yeah, speaking of Solana, actually, um, there were some interesting stats from that CoinShares report about the amount of like digital asset inflows. Solana actually saw more inflows than Ethereum over that week. Solana had $24 million of inflows and Ethereum had $6 million of inflows. So like a 4X different. And I think that's pretty crazy to see, to be honest, like uh, by like a very wide margin, I would have thought that ETH products would have seen more inflows than Solana. Um, so I don't know, maybe like institutions are interested in Solana more than Ethereum these days, perhaps after that Vanek report that came out. Um, Another interesting stat was the geographical distribution. So Canada had 134 million of inflows, whereas the US only had $37.7 million of inflows. And if I'm not wrong, Canada does have a few spot BTC products. And so I think like if you could take away something from that, it's that there is sort of a relatively higher amount of institutional demand for spot-based Bitcoin products than the futures-based Bitcoin products. And I think that bodes well for a potential SEC approval sometime, please. <laughs> yeah, one of the other interesting things about the Solana, uh, Solana stuff is with Breakpoint coming this week, I'm expecting a few tokens to have some, uh, or ex excuse me, a few projects to have a few token-related announcements. We've seen in points programs going on from Jito and uh, the liquid staking solution and MarginFi, the lending platform. Um, presumably points programs eventually turn into tokens and Breakpoint would be a very good time to do that. You know, we just saw Cypher launch its IDO. Uh, quite honestly, that didn't go very well, um, but that was a bit of a shaky protocol that had a, a recent exploit. And so maybe not recent, but it has a history of an exploit. And so that can kind of shake uh, user confidence. But there was only something like 400 or so users that participated in that IDO. And like, I don't know if it was geographically blocked at all, which I, I imagine it would exclude US investors or users. But I don't know, I, I think there's like this lot of this building momentum in the Solana community and Breakpoint is a kind of a good, good point in time to have that release of the momentum. Yeah, but maybe also worth pointing out that now some prominent investors are kind of flipping short on Solana because they're saying that the, right now the long trade is crowded and uh, you still have Galaxy holding FTX uh, like Solana position, which has to be liquidated at some point. And a lot of people are arguing that now is a great place to do it following this like super run up. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It does make me a little bit nervous. I have high hopes for like the the drift, the Gitos, the margin fives, et cetera. But I haven't really looked into the numbers too deeply lately, but it still feels like there's just not a ton of people over there using that stuff. I mean, you're still only sitting at like three to four hundred million of TVL last I checked. And I don't know, just like I get over there and I'm just kind of like, maybe I'm just stuck in my old ways, but I'm just kind of like, all right, what NFT am I minting? You know what I mean? Like that's just like kind of what I always use Solana for. <laughs> And I feel like there needs to be <clears throat> definitely some work done to like get some of that Ethereum capital over to Solana to use DeFi because 
that is crypto's killer use case right now outside of stables. So I would like to see Solana get get a little bit more traction on that front before I get too excited about the points programs. And you know who's really well positioned to do that? Eclipse. Using Ethereum for settlement, sucking in some of that uh, ETH mainnet liquidity, and then still having the SVM where you can presumably we'll see some clones of everything on Solana, anything in DeFi on Solana poured over. Um, and now you can power MarginFi with like a more interesting collateral, right? Like, I, mean, I don't think MarginFi is this like revolutionary protocol by any means, but now you do get to inject ETH liquidity into your, into your system. Do you by any chance know when uh, that goes live? That's actually a great call out. Yeah, Celestia mainnet is definitely a prereq because they're going to use them for DA and obviously you need somewhere to post your DA to. Um, so that has to go live first. I think we're going to see that before year end though. So I, I would expect that over the, you know, before that we flipped to 2024. That was kind of my mental model for that. I think Nick White told us that last time he was on the pod. Um, and so, yeah, once that goes live, I think we can get some of that traction and then, yeah, we'll see, we'll see a live eclipse. You got anything else there, Runner Brick, or uh, we ready to move on? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. I feel like all I've talked about is DYDX now this podcast, but my cool throne is DYDX. The token is up about 30% over the past two weeks with the code base being open sourced, the bridge UI going live today, Monday, October 30th, and uh, validators actively being spun up and beginning to stake tokens. There's 76 validators that are set up according to MintScan, but only 60 will be included in the active set to begin with. So not sure how that churn process actually works, but the important takeaway for investors is basically that all revenue will be shared with stakers uh, slash uh, delegatees or delegators, I guess. Um, and that'll be transaction fees paid in DYDX or USDC or the trading fees that accrue in USDC as well. So kind of a cool play to get uh, USDC yield on uh, a, a native chain asset. I'm expecting personally around 5 to 10% yields. I didn't realize uh, for a little while that uh, the standard over in the Cosmos ecosystem is that lock tokens can be staked to earn yield and uh, participate in governance. So I definitely think that will dampen the yield paid out to stakers. And then as well, over the first six months, there's going to be maker rebates of 1.1 BIPs, uh, as well as commission rates to validators running the nodes. So I'm expecting around 5 to 10%, not as uh, good as I was honestly hoping when I was first running the numbers. I was thinking, man, this is going to be incredible. But now I'm not really quite as optimistic. It is worth noting that as the DYDX price keeps running, the value of the 20 million DYDX tokens, or maybe it's fixed $20 million, but regardless, the... Uh, incentives kind of increase in value. So it kind of kicks off this little flywheel where more people will be incentivized to come over, keep trading, uh, earning even higher value of fees, uh, or sorry, of incentives, and then paying more for fees. So it looks good for protocol fundamentals. Um, DYDX is impressive. I mean, it has a 60% market share still above major perps DEXs, sees 500 million a day in volume consistently. No other perps DEX comes even close to that. Like occasionally you'll see synthetics, rip up to 300 mil in daily volume or GMX or one of the others, but DYDX is consistently there. So I think there's something to be said about that. I am a little bit worried about users actually migrating over because V3 is going to stay live. And I think, you know, why it broke wouldn't isn't fixed is kind of how the saying goes. So I could see a lot of people just hanging out there, uh, keep trading there, but hopefully the incentives can migrate the volume over. I was going to say, I agree um, that I think migration will be a slight concern, but that like 20 million monthly incentives should sort of alleviate some of those concerns. I think one thing that I'm very keen to see how it play out is sort of like MEV on DYDX. Uh, the sort of mechanism today is that there's going to be like a social consensus MEV slashing, if that's the best term. There's no like sort of like inbuilt mechanism i think like uh dydx is working really heavily with skip protocol and they're probably gonna have like a council to identify validators who are extracting mv but it's weird because you know like a lot of professional traders will be on dydx their market making chances are some of them will run their own validators too and validators will have faster execution of their own trades because you can access like the in-memory order book yourself rather than accessing it through the indexer. And, you know, like, I feel like social consensus only works to a certain point, especially when you have so many different stakeholders and so much money at stake. 
like social consensus doesn't really work when there's a lot of money at stake. That that's like my personal take. Um, but yeah, that that should be exciting to see. But I, I think it's okay. They can s- slowly scale that up. I know that after their alpha phase, where they're just trying to get as much DYDX staked and dedicated, they're gonna have a beta phase, which is just like a limited like trading period where they can test things out. So ho- hopefully they can like smooth those issues out before like it goes for a full launch. Just to clarify one thing real quick there too, the $20 million is fixed in dollar terms and it's over like four to six months, not monthly. If it was monthly, I would be insanely bullish right now, but Brick, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you think that it's easier now for DYDX if they're able to like migrate a lot of people over to the Cosmos ecosystem to get them to stay over there? Do you feel that they're going to be stickier since they're kind of in a new ecosystem uh, and do you feel that maybe these incentives could be like successful? Because I guess we've seen a lot of incentive programs run out and then traders just leave the platform. My personal take on this, and David would hate to hear me say this, but um, I, I don't think it's going to be that sticky. You've only got two assets on the platform, DYDX, the token itself, which has a one-way bridge. So yeah, don't expect that to go anywhere other than DYDX chain for the most part, other than maybe some like osmosis pools or something like that. Uh, and then I also see uh, just just USDC um, through, you know, Circle, CCTP. So uh, CCIP, God, there's so many acronyms. But nonetheless, I uh, I don't think that people are going to be going to DYDX and be Cosmos pill and going over all these other applications. I think it's pretty much going to be a venue to trade and it's like a standalone product. That's how Antonio has been positioning it and marketing it as if, you know, it's not a Cosmos chain. It's just a product that's really good that people can use. That's decentralized, that's community owned. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just my two cents on it. Yeah. I, I agree with your justification for that take there, Sam. I got my understanding is when you're on the DYDX front end, like, you're not going to, it's not going to feel too much like a crypto app where you like are like, oh, like this is fun. Like what else can I do on this subset of uh, chains or, or applications? Like, you know, maybe if you're trading like some DGEN thing on Arbitrum, like it very much gives you that that feel. And that's probably a good thing for a general purpose chain too. Uh, but like, I don't think it's going to feel like, oh, you know, let me go take this USDC that I have as collateral, bridge it over to Kujira or Osmosis or Kanto for however long it remains a, a Cosmos chain. Um, I, I just don't think that that's going to be the feeling that you get when you use the app. I should mention too, just real fast, the large unlocks. There's going to be like 60% month over month inflation from November to December with that. So that's just another brutal headwind. I don't know. I, I, I want to say, and I don't think this is public information or anyone actually knows, but I would bet a large percentage of these tokens belong to Antonio himself, considering how small of a, a team it was in the beginning. It was literally just him, and now it's like a pretty big team. But I would guess a vast majority of those tokens belong to himself. And just listening to interviews with him, it does not sound like he has any interest in working on any project or going out of crypto. Like He wants to build DYDX for the foreseeable future, so I could definitely see a lot of those tokens being staked immediately, not sold, and then just occasionally dipping into the piggy bank and selling when he really needs to. But I don't think it's going to be some giant game over for DYDX sell event. And I'm sure a lot of investors are hedged accordingly already too. Of course, not financial advice, but that's probably a great way to uh, to wrap up the episode as well. So you know, appreciate you guys for joining Ren and Brick, and uh, we'll talk to you all next week. 